First Peter 4, 1 through 11. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God might be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, we've heard uh, your words here today. And I ask, Lord, by your spirit that you would open our hearts and our minds and our souls to what you want us, Lord, to not only learn, but also what you want us to do. And Lord, today my voice is weak. I praise yours would be strong. And I would not, Lord, be in your way. Let us, Lord, uh, know that we met with you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, <clears throat> we, we live in a world that desperately needs God. Amen? This past Monday, the top story headline for CNN in the United States was Supreme Court sides with Oregon bakery that refused to make a cake for the same-sex wedding. What do you think, Chris? Amen? <laughs> and the top story headline in CBC in Canada was Politicians Behaving Badly. Rash of rudeness marks fading sense of civility in government. Amen to that. The sad thing about both of these headlines is these headlines are not fake news. A Christian baker really had it to go to the highest court in the land to live out his faith in Jesus Christ. And politicians on both sides of the borders are losing their sense of respect, dignity, propriety, and morality towards one another and those whom they serve. These kinds of headlines are normal for us today, sadly. A quick glance across the world reveals that the foundation of our culture and our society are sliding farther and farther away from God. 
1993, Harvard professor Samuel Huntington wrote a controversial foreign policy paper entitled Clash of Civilizations. In it, he wrote that the fault lines between civilizations will be the battle lines of the future. With that fall of the Iron Curtain, Professor Huntington predicted the next world conflict would not be between nations or economies, but between cultures. An example of the cultural entity would be the Muslim people living inside of nations where they were not predominant before, but now they are. His prediction included the tension that induced the spirit of jihad that caused 9-11 to happen. Another example he spoke of would be the clash of ideas and values within the cultures we see today regarding abortion and euthanasia and gender identity and other social issues. He also forecast a cultural war that would infect the church, causing divisions and diversions from the Bible. All of these seem to be true. But this should not be new news for us. Long before Professor Huntington presented his theory, Jesus told his followers that they would always experience the clash of ideas and values and truth within their culture. But the amazing thing about our Christian faith is that our faith in Christ is transcultural. In other words, there are Christians in every culture because the gospel message is for all people of age, race, background, gender, or place in society. Jesus is an equal opportunity Lord and Savior. As we've seen in our study in 1 Peter so far, the good news of the gospel uh, applies to every culture because it transforms people into better citizens, better children, better parents, better husbands, better wives, and better workers. And so we know it's transcultural. However, a problem arises in those of us who follow Jesus when we allow our faith to be conformed to our culture. And rather than following the power of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ to transform their faith in their lives. This should not be a surprise because we see this battle early, even in Jesus' life. Just before his public ministry on earth, when he went to battle with Satan in the desert. Jesus fought the cultural war against Satan as the evil one sought to tempt him to become a baker rather than a savior, a showman rather than a redeemer, and a landlord of the world rather than the son of God. By the power of the word of God, Jesus prevailed and we can too. But the truth is the devil's been doing this from the beginning in the Garden of Eden. Ever since the fall, Every man, every woman, every child who's ever had a relationship with the living God has battled this battle. And one of the greatest temptations that all followers of Jesus Christ constantly face, one way or another, is the temptation to bypass suffering, the temptation to reach for the crown and not for the cross, as Jesus was tempted by Satan to do. So, too, were the people that Peter was writing these letters to. He wrote these to these people about the year 64 AD, uh, talking to them about as they are trying to escape the political and social and personal suffering they were going through because they were following Jesus. When they first came to Christ, they uh, 
had no idea of suffering. Probably most of us too, when we first came to faith in Jesus, we went, uh, there's probably no suffering here because this is pretty great, I'm saved now. But these folks, after first that realization, the reality of suffering struck because soon they found out that the world had no, no need for Christianity. And so their lives, their families' lives, their livelihoods all became a struggle. Faced with that pressure, they were tempted to slip back into the ways of the world, to once again blend into culture so they would have peace and security rather than struggle and suffering. Now, Peter was aware of this, and he understood that when we truly do love Jesus, when we truly do follow Jesus, we will suffer. And when we do suffer for Jesus, we will be tempted to wander away from our faith and conform into the culture rather than allow Jesus to transform us. The question we face this morning is, how can we overcome that temptation to wander from our faith in the midst of suffering? And Jesus, or excuse me, Peter says in our text, live for God, live for God. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, he says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. In the midst of suffering, we can live for God. We can overcome the temptation to conform to culture by living for the will of God, Peter says. Now, Peter here presents two commands, two imperatives that are keys to living for the will of God in the midst of struggle and suffering. He tells us, first, we must arm ourselves against sin, and secondly, we must abstain from sin. So we'll look at each one of these. We must arm ourselves against sin. Now, the first part of verse 1 gives us an example. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh. So the word therefore takes us back to 1 Peter 3.18 and 1 Peter 3.22 where we read that Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. And Jesus has gone into heaven and he is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So what this is saying is because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, we are now dead to sin positionally before God. As far as judgment God positionally, we are dead to sin. But the problem is we still sin. We still still practice that sin. And so in the middle part of verse 1, we read an exhortation where Peter says, arm yourselves also with the same way of thinking. Brothers and sisters, you and I are always in a spiritual battle. Always. Between the world and the flesh and the devil and ourselves. Sin is our enemies and we are called to arm ourselves with the same mind that Christ had about sin. The word arm here refers to like a heavy, very thick uh, armor that's used by a soldier. Arm is also what's called in the aorist imperative text, 
which means we must make a decisive choice in response to this urgent call to arm ourselves. Take note that the war is won or lost in our minds. This is what Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. This is Peter, one, uh, 1 Peter 5.8. Uh, we need to have a militant attitude towards sin because it's, it's deceitful, it's destructive, it's deceptive, it's decay-producing, and it's death-causing. So we must be vigilant and diligent. And this takes us back to 1 Peter 1.3. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, be sober-minded. Peter's already told us this stuff. Sadly, some of us are not too sober-minded about sin. We're pretty dismissive about our disobedience. Regarding that, the Puritan John Owen says this, the choicest believers who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin ought yet to make it their business all their days to mortify the in-working and power of sin. Be at it always when you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. In the last part of verse 1, we're called back to the example of Jesus Christ. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. In other words, he who has died in the flesh has stopped sinning. A dead, a dead man has no ability to sin. Jesus is now done with sin because he's defeated it. In a similar way, we are to cease in sin because in Christ we should have died to it also. Peter tells us, as Christ suffered under the hands of wicked men, as he entrusted himself to the righteous judge, when he finally suffered physical death, we are to consider the spiritual reality of what that physical death means to our spiritual death. The fact is that the life we lived before we came to Christ is dead. All the stuff we've ever done, even yesterday, is dead. Why? Because Jesus died for it. In Romans 6, verses 8 through 14, the Apostle Paul sums up this new life. Now, if we have died in Christ, he says, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. We must and we can arm ourselves against sin. Amen? Why? 
because Jesus died for it. Secondly, we must also abstain from sin. Peter writes, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. What we're seeing here is our choice in a nutshell. We can either live for our lusts or we can live for the Lord. The word passions here is a, refers to a strong lust-like desires. And the contrast is clear. We either live for the will of God and we live for the will of the world. There's no middle ground. Peter tells us that we are to abstain from sin for the rest of the time. What does that mean? Well, he's reminding us, first of all, of our mortality. We have a limited time on earth, brothers and sisters, and then we face eternity. And what should we be doing with that time? With that time, we should be abstaining from sin. For what purpose? So that in the midst of suffering, we can live for God and overcome temptation to conform to our culture. What is the will of God? The vastness of the meaning of God's will cannot be defined in a very short time. The easy way to look at it is in our context, and the best illustration is understanding the will of God in how we see it in Jesus Christ. It was more than on one occasion Jesus spoke about God's will. And in John 4.34, he said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. In John 5.30, he said, I will not, excuse me, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In the Garden of Gethsemane, in Luke 22, Jesus said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And the key to knowing God's will on the part of Jesus was his attitude towards obedience found in the words of John's Gospel. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you, he told his disciples. Abide in my love. If you love my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. In other, in other words, our willingness to be set aside for the intended purpose of God. Further, Paul tells us, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. The bottom line is that we can't truly know the will of God until we develop a relationship, a personal relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ his Son. Then, when our love grows for him, our wills will also be molded into his will, and our deepest desires will become God's desires. God's will should always be not ours, but his. Amen? Peter writes, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. 
For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live the Spirit the way God does. Here, Peter spells out six specific sins that we are to abstain from, and that he says here they should be in the past. Sensuality is defined as a shameless sexual excess and an insatiable desire for pleasure. Sensuality is a, excuse me, passions is an inordinate, out-of-control lust. Drunkenness speaks of excessive and extravagant indulgence and long, drawn-out drinking. Orgies is about riotous conduct. The word translated is usually kind of carousing. What's interesting here is the background to this one is a group of drunken men who would dance in the streets in honor of the Greek drinking god Bacchus. Drinking parties were drinking matches to see who could drink the most alcohol. Lawless idolatry is the abominable idolatry of serving forbidden idols. This is a small list. We got a big list in our culture and a big list in our own lives. Note that these are the kind of things that we are assessed by and evaluated and treated by the world. They look at us when they see these things. With respect to this, they are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Brothers and sisters, we need not step into any of these things because they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. We need to know We need to live for God. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This verse seems a little bit complicated, but this verse refers to those who were saved while they were living, and now they've died. Our job is to share the gospel with the people who are still living so that they will go to heaven instead of hell when they die. At that time, all wrongs will be made right at the judgment. Jesus will come back, and he'll judge every human being who ever lived. In the meantime, we are to live for God. We are to live for the will of God. We must arm ourselves in that process and abstain from sin so we won't be tempted to wander. When we live for God, we will live in the Spirit the way God does, Peter says right here. In verse 7, Peter says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God whoever serves as one who serves by the strength God supplies. When Peter says the end of all things is at hand, he affirms the various political, personal, social, spiritual difficulties, struggles, sufferings that the church was going through. It probably for them felt this is it. The end is near. As they tried as best they could, to live a godly lifestyle, they still pushed back further and further and further, increasingly by the decadent culture of the Roman Empire. 
But right in this text, Peter is now encouraging us in light of the certainty of the second coming of Jesus. These Christians should remain steadfast. We should remain steadfast too, amen? We should not give up on the hope that's before us. We should continue to live for God by living out the will of God. And here, Peter gives us a couple directions. We should do that out of a lifestyle of prayer and a lifestyle of service. In difficult times, in light of the return of Christ, we are to live out a lifestyle of prayer. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The phrase, the end of all things is at hand, speaks of the coming judgment. The phrase has the same urgency that we read in Genesis 6, when God judged a sinful generation in Noah's time, and also the same sense of the great white throne judgment of Jesus' return. In light of this, Peter encourages us that that's not a matter of fear, but rather of joy. The joy of Jesus coming. He is our living hope. That's what this letter emphasizes over and over again. Our joy and our hope in Jesus should motivate us to hang in there. Peter writes of this in 2 Peter 8, three, uh, excuse me, 2 Peter 3, 8-13, when he says this, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away like with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will all be exposed. Since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the God, because of which heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness will always dwell. This fire is the fire of Peter's heart. The joy that he has to pass along to us about the coming of the day of God. We, we need to remember that God doesn't count days like we do. God doesn't count time like we do. We always seem to be surprised with this. When somebody passes away or anything happens, we go, well, that's a surprise. Well, not for God. The God who is in control, though, wants to empower his people in a lifestyle of prayer. And that's the lifestyle of prayer Peter desired for his spiritual children. And that's why he says, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. When you pray, be clear-headed. Don't panic. Don't get irrational. Don't get logical. From a human viewpoint, the world may be seeming to be coming apart, but by God's viewpoint, God's viewpoint, everything is coming together perfectly. So what is prayer? Prayer is communicating with God. <clears throat> prayer is how we live out a relationship with God. 
God wants to communicate with us. He wants us to communicate with him. He wants us to realize that we are totally and absolutely and desperately needing him in everything. Even the breath that we're breathing right now comes from him. Life is such an incredible mystery and so many things are so out of control and so many things happen to us and people we know and we are helpless to do anything, but we're not because we can pray. The creator and the sovereign God of the universe listens to us and responds to us because he loves us. He literally can change hearts and events in history. Ray Steadman once wrote, man ought to always to pray and not to faint. We must either be praying or fainting. There's no alternative. The purpose of all faith is to bring us into a direct, personal, vital touch with God. True prayer, true prayer is an awareness of our helpless need and our acknowledgement of his divine adequacy. For Jesus, prayer was as necessary as breathing is to the breath of life. Although God certainly knows our needs, praying for them changes our attitude from complaint to praise. It enables us to participate in God's personal plan for our lives. Peter himself most likely had to learn to pray. Perhaps he remembered his own ability to understand the power of prayer as he looked back at the time when he fell asleep in the garden when Jesus asked him to pray for him. I sense the, the man who wrote this letter was much more mature through that experience. In difficult times, we are to pray. And we are also to live out a lifestyle of service. Peter here gives us three ways that we are to serve. Above all, he says, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. In the various trials and sufferings and persecutions that were going on in Peter's day, there was probably a lot of tension, a lot of struggle, a lot of fear in the midst of their relationships together. And so then Peter was very clear that we must continue, even in our days here, to continue to love one another because the culture and the devil and the world and our own sin will want to divide us. Secondly, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Christians are not only to love one another, but we're also, also supposed to love strangers. In an ancient world, hospitality was a sacred duty. The inns in those days were fearful places, so much so that Plato called innkeepers pirates who held their guests at ransom. Peter recognized the great need for open homes in the Christian family so that Christians would feel safe and welcome and how they could grow. And that's still true today. When we gather together in our homes together, we do so as the family of God. And to those of us who do so, we find that our open homes ultimately are the cause and the result of open hearts and change lives. Thirdly, Peter says, as each received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. God gives each one of us in the body of Christ, spiritual gifts and skills that uh, demonstrate that we love God and that 
we love each other and that we are here to build the body, when we truly do live for Jesus, we will suffer. And when we suffer, we will tend to be tempted to wander from our faith and to conform to the culture we live in rather than let Jesus transform our hearts. We can overcome the temptation to wander from our faith by arming ourselves against sin, by abstaining from sin, by living lifestyles of prayer and service for one another and for those who don't know Jesus. Why? Well, Peter tells us at the end, in order that in everything God may be glorified in Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Father, we bless you for this text for today. Very, very clear to us what you want from us. Very clear how you want us to live. And I pray, Lord, uh, these things would soak deep into our, not only our souls and our lives, but also into this church and into this community and into this world that we might be part of this great movement of your spirit in these days. Lord, we, we feel surrounded. We feel the pressure about cult, the culture. But Lord, we, we know that who is in us is greater than anything else. And so we give you our hearts today. Use us, Lord, in the midst of the culture wars to bring victory to those who don't know Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.